So every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. And our, our sermon text this week is from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 20. But before we read our scripture this morning, let us pray together. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, our good, our maturity. So please grant us, grant us to read, hear, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these words. That by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has risen this day and lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, my name is uh, Brandon, one of the pastors uh, here at Sojourn Heights. 
the text that we're looking at this morning uh, is, is one of the more well-known passages in the Bible. Uh, really, no, no matter what your uh, engagement with church historically has been like, if you spent uh, any time in a church, you've likely heard a sermon uh, on this passage. And we read the whole chapter uh, for context, but we're going to zero in and, and really focus the sermon on the, on the end, 16 through 20. Uh, and because it's Easter uh, and because we are uh, adding a few things in our gathering, uh, example, uh, an extra song, I am particularly limited on time, and so let's get uh, right to it. And I want to frame the sermon uh, actually by going back to a sermon that I heard probably uh, seven, eight years ago. Uh, I worked at a church in Dallas uh, before coming down here, and one of our pastors, not, not me, uh, one of our campus pastors there, he, he preached a sermon and he gave it this title, Father Wounds. Father Wounds. And he, uh, the essential uh, message was this, so that we all live with uh, these ever-present wounds in our life that have been passed down by our uh, fathers. Uh, some more, some less, but, but they're there in uh, all of us. And that Sunday morning, in this church that was predominantly 20-somethings, you would have thought an emotional bomb got dropped on the room. It was one of those not a dry eye in the room, strangers hugging strangers kind of mornings. And here's my question. Why would, why would talking about something like father wounds have such a profound impact on a room full of people? The answer is because that morning, in that room, at that time, language was given to something most people felt. And what for most of us in that room, myself included, to be honest, what for most of us in that room was something that just sort of sat under the surface. The undercurrent of our life got brought right up to the surface in a way that was palatable and unavoidable and inescapable. Here's what I want to propose today, that the pain from a fractured, lonely, isolated world is a universal human reality, that this year, this past year, for most of us, has been brought right to the surface. Now, I know that I'm not speaking to everyone right now. I know that some of us in this room are saying, listen, I, I am an introvert to the 10th degree, and this year has been incredible. Social distancing, I've been practicing my whole life for that. But I don't think that's most of us. I think for most of us, the pain of an isolated, fractured, and lonely world has bubbled right up to the surface in a way that we can't avoid it. When we want to try to push through and fight through it, that's my MO. But we can't avoid it. What does that have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Let's get into the text and find out. Matthew 28 uh, is picking up the story after the cross, right? So Good Friday has happened. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried, put into a tomb, and now that tomb is empty. Uh, these two women 
they show up and they see the empty tomb and then Jesus comes to them and he tells these two women, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get my disciples. I want you to tell them to meet me in Galilee. The disciples are the 12 men who followed Jesus most closely uh, over his you know, earthly ministry. One of them turned on Jesus and now there are 11 of them. And so he says, have them meet me in Galilee. They do. And now what we're going to do is we're going to witness this encounter between these 11 disciples and the resurrected Jesus. And I want to begin like this. I want to begin with how they react. How they react when they see him. That's where I want to pick it up. So let's look at verse 16. 16 and 17. Now the 11 disciples. Right, so it was 12. One turns on him. Now there's 11. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So they see him, they encounter him, they worship him, but some doubt. Now, um, I taught on this a few years ago, actually back in 2016, and so I'm certain that you all remember that sermon. That was a joke. You can laugh at that one. I know you don't remember last week's sermon. I get it. I'm kidding. Was that too, too close to home? Too honest? I didn't, I didn't mean to be honest in a sermon. My bad. But I want to go back to it because I think it's a relevant point uh, here. Uh, the, the way that it's written, um, it, it's written as if it's a subset or it could be read as a subset, right? So uh, the 11 see him, 11 worship, but then some, maybe three doubt. Uh, but if you don't know, the New Testament is written in Greek, uh, and we translate it into English. And the word some is not in the actual original uh, Greek text. We, we insert it more as an interpretive move, uh, and I understand why they do, but I, but I don't believe it's necessary, and I think it matters that we see this. Uh, I don't believe that it's necessary um, to read it as a subset. If, you, if you're interested in the boring language part, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, after, the, uh, after the gathering. I don't find it boring at all. Um, but there's no reason the way that it's written to not read it as, but the, or, or, and they worship, but they doubt. There, there's no reason to read it as the 11 worship and then a subset doubt. Now, it certainly could be that, but there's no reason from the text why it should be read that way. There's no reason not to see it simply as um, they worshiped, but they doubted. And here's why I think that matters. Here's why I think that matters. We have a lot of people in our community. And when I say our community, I'm talking about the people of Sojourn Heights that wrestle with doubts. We have a lot of people who wrestle with doubts, doubts such as, is it true? Am I really a Christian? If it's true, why is this happening in my life? Why is this happening in the world? We have a lot of people who wrestle with doubts. Listen, the Bible does not treat doubt like it's a good thing, but it also doesn't shy away from the reality of it either. Listen to this quote uh, from a commentator, theologian. Um, This is what he says, looking at Matthew 28, the chapter as a whole, listen to this quote. It says, there is no doubt an element of Christian apologetic aiming to supply evidence to support the Christian claim of Jesus' resurrection. Now, let me explain that so far. Here's what he's saying. 
He's saying when you look at Matthew 28 as a whole, there is no doubt that there's an element of Matthew trying to prove to a non-Christian world that the resurrection of Jesus is true. But listen to what else he says. But, but, the emphasis throughout is not on factual proof for the non-Christian world, but on the impact on Jesus' bewildered and exhilarated followers, on their fear and joy, their doubt and assurance. You see, the, the, the point he's getting to is that doubt is not simply something for the non-Christian world, but it is a present reality inside the church, and Matthew knows it. Matthew knows it. That it wasn't simply something for these 11 disciples, but Matthew writing probably 30 years after these events, looking at the early church says, listen, I'm going to put evidence in here, proof in here for their support, to buoy their faith, because their wrestles and doubts are a present reality for them as well. And so he gives evidence, but he also hints at the root of doubt, where doubt comes from. And here, and so I want to look at both, only the evidence that he gives and then the root of doubt that he hints at, because doubts are generally almost always both intellectual and emotional, not one or the other. And so I want to talk evidence first. What's the proof that he gives in here? To, to get into our doubts, what's the proof that he gives in here? John Stott, brilliant theologian, he gives um, six proofs, six evidence from this chapter. I'm going to limit myself to eight. I did think that was going to be funnier than you did. Um, I'm kidding. I'm going to limit myself to four. I'll go quick. First, the female witnesses. Listen, if you've been to an Easter service here at Sojourn Heights, you have heard this in the years past because it's in the text every year that we look at for Easter. Um, But I want to say this, uh, that in this day and age, women were not considered reliable and credible sources if you were trying to make up a narrative, a story that wasn't true, that would then spread throughout the known world, in this day and age, you would not have had women as eyewitnesses to the account you're trying to make up a story about. Now, I I have talked more about this in years past, and so I'm not going to go into much detail except to say this, that throughout human history, there is not a single culture or religion that has ever treated women to date here with the kind of dignity that Christianity and Jesus in particular does. Not a single one. Not a single one that showed the kind of honor to women that Jesus does. And I I hope that our church, our community, can do honor to the honor that Jesus shows women. Second, they took hold of his feet. Second evidence. Took hold of his feet. Listen, if you're making up a legend, trying to make up a story that you knew wasn't true, you would never put, never put kinds of details into the story that could be disproven. You would not have done that. Third, the date of Matthew's gospel. The story that, about the guards being paid off, if that wasn't true, you would not have had that in the story. It was too soon and could have been disproven if it wasn't true. You would not have included that if if it wasn't true. Fourth, the changed lives of his followers. Jonas it says that they grabbed hold of his feet. I already said that one. Sorry. Notice it says when they grabbed hold of his feet and they worshiped 
that to grab hold of his feet like this, this was an act of worship. This is a change in posture toward Jesus. This is Jesus going from a teacher to someone worthy of worship. And in their view, who would have been worthy of worship? God and God alone. This was a change in their view of Jesus. And if we follow the story forward, something happens to the 11 men, these 11 disciples in the scene. These are the same 11 men that when Jesus was arrested, it says they fled. They left him and they fled, seeking safety somewhere else. It's the same Peter who three times, I don't know that man. I don't know, like I, I mean, I know who he is, but I'm not one of his people. It's the same people who fled, the same people who denied him, who after his resurrection were willing to die for him. Same people who fled out of fear were willing to die after his resurrection. There is no plausible explanation for what happened after Jesus' resurrection except that it happened. Would you be willing to die for a lie that you made up? No. No. And they wouldn't have been either. So what about roots? What are the root of doubt? Where does it come from? Well, in, in this passage in Matthew, uh, he, I think he hints at it. Four times. Four times in chapter 28, uh, fear or doubt is addressed. Fear or uh, being afraid. Angel shows up. First thing he says, do not be afraid. Jesus shows up. First thing he says, do not be afraid. The guards, and what is my favorite scene in this chapter where if you could just close your eye, picture what was happening, guards, for fear of him, tremble and act like dead men. Why did the disciples flee when Jesus was arrested? Fear. Why, why Peter three times, I don't know that man? Fear. The root of doubt is almost always fear. Let me give you another example from the Gospels. Earlier in Matthew, there's a story where uh, the, the disciples are out on a boat, and Jesus comes walking up to them. And the first thing he says is, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter, good old Peter, gets out of the boat. Peter is the ready, fire, aim disciple. Gets out of the boat, sees the wind, says he was afraid. And what does Jesus say to him? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? The overlap of fear and doubt right there. The root of doubt, almost always fear. Now, I've been sitting on this a little longer than I probably should have. But let me tell you why. One way, one way to guard against fear turning into doubt is to simply engage it. To be willing to engage it, to be willing to ask honest questions like, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of losing? What, what is the thing in my life that if I lose this, I doubt your goodness, your love, your presence, your power in my life? You want to have a chance at cutting off doubt at the root. Be willing to ask and answer that question honestly. And listen, it is not an easy question to answer with honesty. 
Generally, we need help answering that question. But you want to get to the root of doubt and cut it off at the source. Be willing to ask and answer that question. Honestly, be willing to get into your deepest fears. But that's not all. That is not all that we need, and Matthew knows it. We also need to see Jesus for who he is and someone who can do something about those deepest fears of ours. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, heaven and earth, has been, past tense, given to me. Now, the question is, when was this authority given to Jesus? Certainly, uh, in Jesus' life on earth, in his ministry, he, he exercised a particular and unique authority, right? No, none of us have ever been able to speak to a storm and the storm obey. None of us can look at somebody dead and say, get up and he gets up. There's a unique authority that Jesus had in his life on earth. And so what is this referencing when it says, all authority has been given to me? What is he talking about? Every commentator I could find agreed that what Jesus is doing here is he's echoing words from Daniel 7. He's echoing words from this scene out of Daniel 7, which was this prophecy about a Savior, the Messiah, that would come. And in chapter 26, Jesus echoes these same words. But in chapter 26, he, he speaks of it, references it as an event that is about to happen, something that will happen. Here in 28, it's already happened. So why future in 26 and then past in 28? What happens in between? Jesus leaves the grave. That's what happens in between. Jesus' heart stops pumping blood and then it starts again. His lungs stop pumping air and then they start again. That until now, until this moment in human history, death has exercised a particular authority over all of humanity. Every single one. Death is the greatest enemy that will be conquered. It is a relentless, grim reaper that shows no respect for age or wealth. None. It has been the final authority for every person until now. Until now. That on the cross, on Good Friday, Jesus subjected himself to death, and in his resurrection, he subjected death to himself. From the moment sin entered the world, death had a particular authority. An authority that was undone, upended in the resurrection of Jesus when he walked out of the grave. Now listen to me. Sojourn. In a year that has been loaded with fear and anxiety, that does not mean, that does not mean that the fear of death is not real. I remember, back in 2017 now, 
I remember being in the hospital room with my dad the last week. I remember the look in his eyes. I've been in hundreds of hospital rooms just like that. Luce Ferry, French philosopher, would say the primary governing fear in humanity is the fear of death. This is not to say that fear of death isn't real. It is to say that because Jesus left the grave, death is not the end of your story. If it is, make all the money you can. Like if death is the end, then just give your life to some. Walk out right now. What Paul would say, the Apostle Paul, is what we're doing right now, vain. If the resurrection didn't happen. Listen, it's not to say fear of death isn't real and tangible and gripping. It is to say that because Jesus left the grave, death is not the end of your story. It's not the end. Death is not the final authority over your life. Neither COVID nor cancer nor a plane crash can change that. Let's keep reading. Verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and to behold. Behold. You do in the text. Behold. I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, therefore, make disciples. My bad, Jenna. Go make disciples of all nations. So do not try to write into the sermon a spot where I could say, I think we need a bigger vision, a grander vision of what God is doing in the world than the one that we've had lately. Listen, that's my fault, not yours. But I think it's no less true that we need a little bigger glimpse of what God is doing in the world to be recaptured by the might of his redeeming power. But we need to save that for another sermon. What I want us to see today is Jesus saying this to you at the end. Probably shouldn't use the word end so definitively, but, but at the end of a year since our last Easter, at the end of what has been a lonely and isolating year to hear the words from Jesus, behold, I am with you always. I am with you. I am with you. In your loneliness, in your pain, in your marriage falling apart, in your fear, in your doubt, I am with you. I am with you. Most of us in this room we know the pain of someone that we love or care about or value or esteem looking at us and saying, I never want to see you again. I never want to speak to you again. Like we know that gut punch. I never want to see you again. I never want to speak to you again. Something Jesus says to his followers, never. Never. He says, I am with you always. I know your doubts. I'm with you. I know the kind of husband you are. I am with you, and you can do better. I know your 
fears, anxieties, and how lonely you are, I am with you. I know about your addiction. I, I know porn has gripped you. I am with you. And you can be broken free. I am with you. I never want to see you again. Not something Jesus says to his people. You want more proof? Who's the you in the text? Obviously, you know, it's applicable to us. When he says, um, I, I am with you always, like who's he looking in the eye and speaking to? That, his disciples. The 11 who fled out of fear when he was arrested. And what does he call them? Look back at verse 10. Throw verse 10 on the screen behind me. Look at verse 10. What does he call them? My what? That was for you to answer. Sorry about that one. It's okay. You didn't know. It's not your fault. My brothers. My brothers. My brothers. This is intimate and affectionate language. Listen, my son right there, he is not a son to me. He is my son. My wife. She is not a wife. She is my wife. This is not Jesus saying, hey, go get somebody's brothers. Of course, they're the brother of somebody. My brothers. Go and get my brothers. My brothers. You notice he doesn't say, hey, go get those cowards. Go get those disloyal, fearful, all of which would have been true. He says, go get my brothers. Sojourn. You have a brother in the resurrected son. You have a brother in the resurrected son. And because you have a brother, you have a father. Jesus being your brother makes God your father. We, we went through the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of this year. This teaching of Jesus, and in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, where Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray, and he opens like this Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Not my Father, not your Father, our Father in heaven. You can pray, Our Father. Our Father, Jesus being your brother, makes God your Father. And he is not a Father that creates wounds. He is a Father that heals wounds. Listen, I, I have four kids. And, and I am doing the best that I can to raise them. But one day they're going to need counseling. Because of me. And one day that counselor is going to need to say to them, yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you. I know your dad did that. I know he spoke like that. I know that left lasting, ongoing wounds in your life. But listen, here's what you need to do. You need to look at the resurrected son, know that he's your brother, and know because he's your brother, you have a father, a father who heals the wounds left behind by your trying but imperfect father. And you do too. You do too. Whatever the source of pain in your life, whatever the lasting, ongoing wounding in your life, here's what you need to do. You need to look to the resurrected son. Know that because he's your brother, you have a father, a father who embraces, welcomes, and 
can heal. And you need to hear Jesus looking at you saying, no matter what you've done, listen to me, I will never leave you. I will never leave you, my brother. I will never leave you, my sister. I am with you always. Always. I want to leave you with this. In Jesus' resurrection, it opens the door to the heart of the Father. The Father that Corinthians calls the Father of mercies and God of all comforts. The Father that, no matter how long you have followed Jesus, you need to return to him over and over and over and over and over and over again. The Father who, in the words of Thomas Goodwin this Easter morning, if your heart is hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart is dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you are sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you are sinful, he has mercy to cleanse you. Sojourn, wherever you find yourself this Easter morning, Jesus looks into your wounded and weary soul and says, I am with you. You are my brother, you are my sister. And because I am your brother, my father is your father, and he is the father of mercy, the father who heals. So whatever fear, whatever pain, whatever doubt, whatever anxiety you brought with you this morning, Jesus says, bring them to me, and let's take them to our father together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather together and talk about your son, the son who stood in our gap on the cross, who was put into a tomb, who is no longer there. Help us look to the resurrected Jesus, knowing that he is our brother, and because he's our brother, we have a father in you. That you are the father of mercies. You can heal. Help us have the courage to turn and run to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.